You're listening to the Jazz Session with my dad, Jason Crane. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 357. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. You'll find them online at respectsextet.com. Please visit them and buy their records. Thanks to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. He's online at twitter.com slash Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. All About Jazz has a widget for this show, which you can put on your website, and it will show the latest episode. To find it, go to allaboutjazz.com, and in the search box, type in Jazz Session Widget. And then if you install it on your site, let me know, because I'll mention you in my newsletter, which goes out each week. You can get that newsletter by going to thejazzsession.com and clicking on Mailing List. And while you're on the site, would you please become a member? This show, quite literally, only is able to exist because of people joining. It's free to listen to, and it always will be, but I cannot continue to make it if you don't kick in a little bit. So if you would become a member, that would be lovely. If you get this show in iTunes, or even if you just have iTunes, if you could go to the iTunes store and search for the Jazz Session and then put a little review, that would be great, because the more reviews there are, the higher up in the iTunes rankings it goes, and the greater the chance that other people will find the Jazz Session, just like you did. I'm also a poet. I've got a blog at jasoncrane.org and also a book called Unexpected Sunlight, which you can get via my blog, jasoncrane.org. So please go to check out that other part of my life if you would, and if you uh, like what you see on the website, if you want to buy the book, I'd be happy to send it to you and even to sign it for you, which I think probably decreases its value as the old saw goes. Today's show is one, it seems like, I think I said this in the beginning of the show, it seems like it's a long time coming. Uh, Nate Woolley is my guest, a trumpet player who keeps coming up in conversations with other musicians, and just when I'm out and about around town, he's just always doing cool stuff, and uh, it's finally time to have him on the show. Well, it was time to have him on the show a long time ago, but I finally actually got around to doing it, and visited the place where he works in Brooklyn, uh... Not, not without some difficulty. It's not all that far from my house, but uh, once you get into this enormous building where he works, you really you could be lost for decades until someone finds you, unless you know exactly where you're going. Luckily, though, I did find him, and you'll hear the results of that coming up in just a few minutes.
My guest, and I feel like this is long overdue, is Nate Woolley. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, I'm, I'm not, I can't, still can't explain how this happened, but somehow I spent either 72 or 74 minutes on more than one occasion listening, I think, to one chord and loving every single second of it, and I can't explain why. So I thought maybe we could start with the almond and just talk a little bit about about what it is and what it was that I was hearing, because there seems to be so much going on inside it mm-hmm. at a very nuanced level. Yeah, well, I, the the almond just on the basic level is a solo trumpet record, mm-hmm. and it's I've, I've done a lot of solo trumpet records that have been more about extended technique and real raw sounding things, and um, this initially started as like a 20 minute excerpt for a website, a British website, and the idea was to do something different and to try and make something that was tonal and, and pretty, but also really just use the natural sound of the trumpet. Um, so the piece itself, as it's been exploded out, is each, every single note that's in it is a combination of anywhere between like three and nine different recordings of the same note, mm. um, either with different mics or different mutes or different places in different rooms in my apartment. Um, and then those are all combined to make chords. And what you hear is one chord um, is really a lot of shifting notes coming in and out, but they're all based around one central drone pitch that happens for the entire 72 minutes. And, and the way that, uh, that I dealt with, with the piece itself was to make it in a way that as the chords start to butt up against each other, you get all these kind of phenomena that come out that sound like voices singing and, and the overtones clash in a way. I mean, this is like a Phil Niblock thing, um, but... I don't know who that is. Phil Niblock is a, was a, is a drone composer where he puts two notes against each other and, and the attention goes to the beating pattern between mm. the two. So if they're out of tune, you get that kind of, you know, da, 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 um, and you pay attention to that and it, it, it really becomes more attention to the micro event rather than melodies and rhythms and harmony. This was kind of taken to a much further extreme where ghost notes actually come out of the, the different chords up against each other. And I was really actually unhappy with the 20 minute version because it was an interesting exercise, but I never, I never really felt like it did anything to me personally. And I never have been interested in releasing something that didn't make me feel something physically. Mm. It's just a, something that's a thing for me. But then as I restructured and made it longer and longer, I noticed that when I'd sit and listen to it at about 40 minutes, all of a sudden everything takes on a much more important value. When the notes change, all of a sudden that change seems to be much, much bigger than it actually is. And it becomes much more important because all, if all that your life is involved in at that moment is these sets of trumpet tones, the change in the tone is a huge event. And so, you know, by, by the time you get two-thirds through it, 
and the big chords come in and it's really shaking there's a lot of these false voices singing above it it's totally blown out of proportion uh, rationally but it's it, that's when i actually felt something and so yeah i mean that's that's where the 72 74 minutes i think yeah, i think it's something like 74 minutes came about it's it's this changing of perception due to the sheer length of something you know doing something over and over for a certain amount of time i found it very moving i remember the first time you're welcome the first time i listened to it i had just the day before been uh listening to uh a particular type of meditation practice that is focused on just hearing available sound in a room Mm -hmm. and so i had was kind of in that frame of mind and then i sat down to listen to this thing for the first time and it has a very, uh, I mean, not only a moving, but I think a very kind of meditative quality to it. But it's it's so interesting how how not static it is while remaining, in some ways, as you right. said, you know, incredibly static. I mean, it's such an interesting exposition of those two ideas yeah. of constant change over stasis. Well, and it's strange. I mean, if you look at the tradition of that music, um, I mean, there is a tradition of that music in. T- contemporary classical. I mean, there's mm. someone like Phil Niblock that I mentioned. It's another composer named Ilian Radig. Um, you know, and then you have the noise version of, of that where there's a little bit more motion. That piece is actually really kind of not a drone piece. It moves a lot. It's not a micro event. The events are really large in comparison and really lush. And I mean, it, it, it's kind of like almost like a romantic drone piece. You know, it is static, but when the changes come in, they're all very meaningful and purposeful. Not to say that that other drone music isn't, but it's it's almost like hard on your sleeve drone music, which is strange. And um, I I think for me, still when I listen to it all the way through, um, I feel different when I'm done than when I did when I started. And and. That's an, a major thing for me with all the records I do. I mean, I want... If, if it doesn't make me feel different when I get done listening to it, then it doesn't seem like we need it, that record to exist, you know? Um, and that doesn't mean, like, always mean that it makes you feel different in a better way. Like, I, I'm just as happy with a record like Throw Down Your Hammer and Sing where you actually feel worse. Like you just feel raw and wrong at the end of that record. And... I love that. I mean, because then, then there's a human component to it, and that's the whole point of doing this: is to reach out and and deal with people, communicate with people in a way that, to me, is really honest and personal. And so, I, I the almond is the first time that I felt like um, I felt better at the end of it, mm. and I felt like it's a real positive record. That's not something I've normally done. I've always thought that it's a lot easier um and i think this is the case in jazz too it's a lot easier to to communicate anger and pain and suffering and sadness and you know all these messed up things it's way easier to express that and it's way easier for people to uh, latch on to that as an audience than it is to express happiness i mean it, you know definitely way easier to hear uh something that's really frenetic and angry um, and know exactly what that is and then you listen to someone like Ornette 
or Ron Miles. And it was like, man, that's weird. I don't know how to feel about that, you know, because I actually feel really good after that's over. So, so I'm, I'm really happy with that record because I feel like it's the first time I was able to kind of pull it off. speaking of your personal reaction to listening to jazz when you um, say that i mean because i don't I, I don't feel that way at all i i tend to find almost the opposite that i and maybe that's because i gravitate toward music that makes me feel good mm-hmm. but i tend to find a lot of music that makes me that moves me in a way i would describe as happiness or joy yeah well you know i think it's a different it's the jazz i choose to listen to sure and maybe and that's probably the personal part mm. i tend to be um I'm not a negative person, but I tend to be um, a little darker than normal, and that's I'm maybe more pessimistic. I'm also really socially not an easy person. I mean, I'm not an awful person, but I don't put myself in social situations. Sure, I stay by myself usually, and so the music I gravitate towards is music that I think connects with me on that level. Um, but, you know, I grew up on big band music, and I think the reason I stayed with it and loved that music is it is joyful. I mean, it's hard not to listen, or it's hard to listen to someone like Jonah Jones or Bunny Berrigan and not hear pure joy in it. But somewhere in my education and somewhere in my life, something got tweaked where that's harder for me to relate to now. Mm. Um, so it, it's absolutely a personal thing. And, and I think when I talk to people that listen to my records, we seem to have a lot in common. I mean, that would be the thing. I'm sure when Ron talks, uh, Ron Miles talks to people that listen to his records, they're probably, you know, much more like he is too. But it's, it, I, I see what you're saying, but that I think it's, it becomes the subjective choice that you make and in, in what you listen to has a lot to do with what you're reading into what you listen to. Sure. You know? I think that's fair. I wanted to ask you one more question about the Almond, which is about it as a composition. Um, you talked about the intentionality of the, the movement inside the piece, but, uh, for me, it's, it's very opaque how you actually got there. So can you talk about how, like, are there, are there written out bits where you say, okay, now this particular recording in this room is going to come in because I know this thing will happen as a result? And yeah, it's, it's, I mean, the, the, there are basically a hundred trumpets playing on the, on that record. And they're all boiled down into basically 24 components, um, 24 notes. And it's, some of the notes repeat, obviously, but they're different 
different recordings of the notes or different mm. timbral versions of the notes. Yeah, and then on top of that, you have this uh, concert G that runs through the whole thing. So that's 25 altogether. Um, and originally, the whole thing was done on uh, graph paper. I knew um, the idea was to run it like like tape loops. I mean, it's a tape loop piece, basically. And I had just been listening a lot to Brian Eno's music for airports, which is, I mean, just such an elegant tape loop piece. And the idea was to make something as an exercise that was that elegant, um, just using the trumpet. I'm glad you said that because I didn't want to make that obvious comparison, but I have also just been listening a lot to yeah. Brian Eno's music for airports when you sent me this. And I yeah. thought, oh, well, there's yeah, some I mean, it's, there. Definitely. It's phenomenal. <laughs> it's, it's one of the most beautiful tape loop pieces. It's so, it's so elegantly done that I think a lot of people don't realize it is a tape loop piece. You know, they think, oh, that, that just, these are a bunch of guys in a room, but I mean, right. that's, that's just what it is. I mean, basically he ran the loop for hours and hours and hours and then cut the bits that he liked. Um, so I did that originally just thinking the easiest way to do it is just to number these tape loops and then graph them out and then layer them. And I, you know, I wrote out the chords that I wanted to do and how I wanted them to progress. Um, and then when it got picked up by Pogus, when the record, uh, they said they would put it out, they asked me if they could apply for an Aaron Copeland fund grant, which meant I actually had to write a score. So mm. then I had to go back and actually redesign all the tape stuff to make a score for a hundred trumpets with all these different mutes, you know, playing at the same time. And so that actually was kind of an interesting exercise too, to see it, see it happen in real time. If, as if someone was conducting it, you know, but, um, but really initially it was, it was a tape loop piece and it, it was just about adding different harmonies over the A and how one harmony slowly moves to another. And how, what does that mean? You know, what does it mean to move from something that's very tonal, like an A major chord, uh, pardon me, a G major, I was transposing, uh, G major chord over this G to all of a sudden like a D flat major chord over the G, which is much more dissonant. And then how does that make you feel if it happens over 13 minutes, mm. you know, um, which is, I mean, that's no new concept, but it was, there were enough things that were new to me that it still felt valid to do it. You know, were there, were there elements of surprise or un unplanned kind of synchronicities in there? A well? lot of the, I mean, all of the ghost tone stuff, all of the singing, the singing notes that come out, because there are a couple, there are a couple notes that do have my voice in them, but the ones that you never actually hear those on the tape, what you, the things that sound like a voice are always the, um, these two harmonies reacting against each other and this, third pitch being produced and all of that was a surprise i mean all of that was absolutely trial and error and and mixing you know if if one chord was mixed a little bit higher nothing would happen if you mixed it a little bit lower all of a sudden you get this human voice that like sang in a pattern up above and you know it was just those kind of surprises were great that's what made it interesting to keep working on it to see how much you could get out and have this other level of composition, you know, that you didn't control, but you still now have to structure so it makes sense. Because it's not interesting if it's just kind of like intellectual fireworks right. on top, you know. So, I mean, it was in, it, it took a long time and it was interesting and I enjoyed doing it. So, I wanted to ask you uh, about another record that I had to really sit with quite a few times, I think, to 
to start getting my head around, which is the Eight Syllables Project. Can you talk about a little bit about that, the origin yeah. of that piece? Um, eight Syllables was... Well, last year, in 2011, I was uh, an artist in residence at Issue Project Room, which is a space here in Brooklyn. And um, really one of the things when when they told me that I, I was going to do it, um, the, there were two things that they really wanted to make sure that I did. And one was the seven-story mountain, which is an ongoing thing. And one was a solo concert because I'd done a lot of solo concerts there. And, um, and I'd been talking at the time with a friend of mine named Ben Hall, who's a percussionist and an artist. And we'd been talking a lot about like, how do you shock yourself out of doing the same stuff? And I'd felt like my solo concerts had gotten kind of stale. I mean, it's like, make this sound, make this sound, plug in the amplifier, you know, wait for them to clap. It, it, and it, that's not a comfortable place for me to be. So I wanted to change things for this. Um, and he and I are both interested in semiotics and cultural theory. And and we'd been reading different texts. And he said, well, you know, what What if you just change the signs? Um, you're used to thinking um, in a way, or I, I guess I made the leap of like, I'm I'm used to thinking about notes on a staff. And if you change the signs, can you do it in a in a way that's musically valid but gets you out of your comfort zone? And I tried a bunch of different ways, and it didn't work uh, for me because it was the graphic notation thing just meant that I was blowing. Like you know, it just didn't make any sense. So what I did was um, I took the International Phonetic Alphabet, alphabet which is it's in English. There's thirty some odd different symbols for different parts of the um of what are called phonemes which are the things that make up the different parts of speech different sounds of the different parts of speech and for each one of those your mouth does a different movement there's your teeth are in a certain spot your tongue is in a certain spot your throat is in a certain spot your nasal cavity is in a different spot right so, so we're talking about things like mm, yeah mm, yeah yeah all that kind of stuff right? <laughs> like all these you know and for english there aren't that many when you get into like hungarian there's hundreds and but it's it's relatively simple so um the idea was if that's those are all the things that i use as the mechanical apparatus to play trumpet then i could just use those symbols, set up the mechanical mechanical apparatus, my teeth, my throat, and all that, and then just take a breath in and breathe out and see what happens. And, you know, the the effect is 
one, you're, you're not allowed to deal with your habits because you've got too much else to deal with. And two, it gets me after years and years of college and practicing and taking trumpet lessons to be okay with something that doesn't sound right. So that was kind of the importance of it for me. And that, that was the piece that came out of it. And it says eight syllables because the, there are eight sounds. One of them's repeated, but there are eight sounds that are different makeups of phonemes that represent syllables. And it's just doing that. There are certain things where I change uh, the pitch, you know, then after doing, doing it, there were musical things I needed to add to make it not just an exercise to make Mm. it have something that affected you as a listener, like I said, um, and made me feel a different way. Otherwise it's just kind of an interesting concept that has no point. Um, and so that was the, that was the piece. And I did it at issue project room, their new space, which is this huge cavernous hall. And this was, I think they're working on, um, soundproofing or, you know, working with the sound right now. But at that time it was like all marble and had eight seconds of decay. And so I went in there on a rainy night and did the piece and, and it, it worked out really well. I, I don't know that I could do it again or would do it that often. Cause it really just thrashes your face, but, but it, you know, I thought it was effective for what it was at the time, you know, in terms of a way of breaking you out of whatever idiomatic boxes you might've been in, do you find that there's a, there's a carryover of projects like the almond or like eight syllables when you're not actually focusing on the minutia of those projects, but in what you might call your regular playing? Or yeah. Your... Yeah. I think, I think there is, I mean, the, with those two projects specifically, duration has changed, you know, I mean, there, and density, the idea of density and duration, it, it, even, um, like I'm just getting ready to leave on tour with Harris Eisenstadt's band. And even in that where it's really a pretty traditional playing, you know, I mean, we're swinging and there's chord changes. I've noticed that I pay way more attention to playing the changes in shifting densities over, you know, I'm paying more attention to the density and the, and really, really, really long phrases. I mean like circular breathing, two minute phrases that no self-respecting like jazz trumpet player would ever do because it's so far afield of that that tradition but it makes it really interesting for me because it it forces i notice that everybody does things differently i mean not only in that situation i just bring that up because we're doing it but but like in my own band the writing has changed and gotten broader um it's gotten slower it's but at the same time more dense or like the duo with Paul Litton is, seems to be the place where everything I'm working on gets dumped because he's the most open partner I have. And so, you know, I was working on the almond and eight syllables when we went on tour this year and every single night was like 50 minute long pieces that just could be really static and it could be static at like a really dense energy level, or it could be really static at a slow level, but it really affected those things.
Can you define density as you're using it? Yeah, this? I mean, uh, density, I think of density in two different ways. In the jazz, in the way that I play jazz, when there's playing lines, there's, it's the speed of the line and the blurred quality of the line um, and how you set your phrase against the time. If To me, like playing eighth notes right down the middle of time is very transparent. I mean, it actually feels like it's got a ton of space because everybody's hitting these beats at the same time. Right? Sure. But if you, I tend to think now of really long arches, which might be two or three choruses, and, you know, I'll hit one at the beginning of the first chorus and then one at the beginning of the third chorus. And in between, I'm just trying to cram as much information in that as humanly possible. And, you know, also dealing with things where I'm trying to play multiple melodies in different registers and things that just are not, to me, part of the jazz tradition, but it, it's just filling up the space in a different way. The other version of density is is filling up the space in a certain kind of energetic way mm. so you know really basically taking up every single frequency i possibly can at one time with the horn you know like there's these big screens and multiphonics that's like a shorter density thing but it wipes everything out and that's i mean not in an aggressive way i think it's interesting to all of a sudden just have something that obliterates everything and then comes back into the background again. Can you differentiate that from, I guess, what to me when I was in my teens was the first example of density I ever really thought about, which was Coltrane's Sheets of Sound? Yeah. Can you can you kind of juxtapose it, those? I things? think it's the same thing. I mean, I you know the the first the first time I ever thought about what I was talking about with the jazz thing, where it's like, you know, you hit one and then you hit one like three minutes later. That was introduced to me by Ron Miles when I was studying with him in Denver. And he was talking specifically about Coltrane. And he said, you know, it starts with eight bar phrases where things get looser and looser and looser, but he's always hitting in eight bar phrases. And then by the time you get to um, interstellar space, every single piece is like he hits one and then he doesn't come back until the end of the piece, you know, and it's just this big push. And Ron does that really well too. Um, especially if you listen to his earlier stuff, like there are these 
really long phrases that are really out of time. And then he kind of like slips back into time at the last minute. Um, but this is just my conception of it to myself, at least is that it's just, this is just taken one step further where I've, I've taken Ron and John Coltrane's elegance out of it. Like it's not about elegance for me. It's about hitting it and then filling up this space in a way that feels personal to me, which is very frantic. Mm -hmm. And then, and then letting the release come much later or come in a way that you aren't expecting it. Um, like we all know how Coltrane released all that tension. I mean, he, he had these ways that he got out of it and we all know what those are and that's a language now. So the idea for me is how do you change the way we release the tension? That's like the interesting part for me. So if you do it in ways that people aren't expecting and, and for me now, like it's, it's becoming less obvious for me to come out of something like that and play something right down the pocket because the expectation is that I'm never going to do that. And so it's just different expectations and surprising people and surprising yourself and finding different ways to say the same thing. You know, it, when you, when you're married to someone for a long time, you have to find new ways to say that you love them or it stops meaning anything. It's the same thing with music. And if you play with the same people for a long time, you have to find new ways to make your same point over and over and over and over again, you know, and, and if you're not doing that, then it, it, it gets stale. And I absolutely expect at some point it's going to get stale for me. But for right now, I'm still able to find new ways, successful or not, of, of at least pushing the tension and release and different aspects of that tradition, you know. It sounds, and feel free to correct me, but it sounds somewhat demanding on the listener, this, this, what you're describing. Here. I think it can be. I think it can be, but you know, someone asked me this recently, um, in a different setting, and I can't remember what it was, but, um, I don't, I don't think that music that has an honest intent and a personal intent, is as demanding on a listener as people think it's going to be. Um, and, I mean, I, right there, all that stuff I talked about is concept, but none of that really matters, ultimately. You know, like, it's an interesting thing to think about, and I can only have the horn on my face so long every day, and I work, and, like, I'm on trains, so I think about a lot of things, and then you work on it. But the fact of the matter is, like, if you really believe in something and you really believe in what you're playing, and you really feel like you're 
kind of pouring your heart out to people. And it's like I said, like, I'm not a comfortable person around other people. I'm really shy in general. And so this is the only way that I can really do it. It's like talking about concepts and playing my horn. So if you sit down in front of people, like in a solo concert, this is where it's most typical for me. I want people to be really, really close to me and uncomfortably close and to give everything and have every note feel as personal as possible and not to like put anything in there that you don't really believe in. If you listen back to that, it can be really abstract. But if you're there, I don't think anybody thinks it's difficult because it's just a bunch of people trying to communicate to each other. And I think we all sometimes put up different barriers to that communication. And, you know, concept is definitely one of those. Tradition is one of those. But when it comes right down to it, that can be really affecting music. People have a concept of music as being incredibly difficult. Something like Milton Babbitt or Ileon Radig or uh, even someone like John Cale or Steve Reich or someone like that. But it's there's always an in, you know, there's always something in your life that you can relate to. And if you just can find the button that switches you onto it, it's, it's incredibly profound. And it's incredible to realize how much of that stuff is out there. You know, for me too, I mean, I listen to things that I don't get. I have a hard time with Milton Babbitt, but I can hear now certain structural things that are of interest, you know, and so I connect with it to a certain, at a certain level. And I think people that don't connect with my music don't listen to it again, and that's cool. But the people that do, I think there's something in there that they feel like there's something that communicates. And so it's, it's worthwhile to keep doing, you know. Do you ever say any of what you just said to an audience? Uh, I mean, in an abbreviated form when you're when you're playing. Some sometimes in solo performances, I do. You know, I, I it really depends on the situation. Um, sometimes I just don't feel the need for it. That it, it's a really strange thing. The the solo thing is really big for me playing solo because it's so uncomfortable to me, and it's so personal. Um. So yeah, I mean, sometimes I talk about what's been going on. Sometimes sometimes I say exactly what I just said, maybe not in those terms, but I mean, I think I've said in at times that I was thinking on my way over that all of us kind of 
go from one sweaty box to another sweaty box and we're all mad at each other all day, but somehow we all found each other here, which is really bizarre. And why are we doing that? That's really strange. Like, why are we doing both things? And then you start playing and it gives people a way to connect with things. Mm -hmm. And I, sometimes it doesn't feel appropriate to talk and, and, you know, you have to grab people in a certain way. And I, I don't mean it like in a circus kind of, you know, you got to get their attention, boy. It's, but I mean, like different audiences have different needs. I play a lot in Europe and for me to go on a long personal soliloquy makes no sense in Belgium where, you know, most of them will understand, but if you're not reaching everybody, you know, sometimes I turn the lights off and so they don't know where the sound is coming from. You, you can just feel what people are comfortable with. Sometimes they're not comfortable being that close to you. You know, sometimes they're not comfortable with what you're doing. And so, you know, you just try and make the experience nice for you and nice for them. I mean, it's all about all of you people being in the same room. Um, I don't do it just for myself. So, um, you know, yeah, the explanation comes when it needs to come, I think. If people need it, then we talk about it. Um, not in any kind of like condescending way, but I'm happy to talk to people. If they approach me, I'm happy to talk to them, you know, and get to know people. So. How did you get started doing solo playing? I was tricked into it by <laughs> Tim Barnes, uh, who was, he was a percussionist that lived in New York for a while. And I played with him quite a bit and he ran different series. He had a label. Um, and he said, I'm doing this concert at anthology film archives and will you come play? And I thought he meant come play with him because we played duo. And when I got there, it was just a chair in the middle of the room and all these people and uh yeah and that was the first time i did it and it really was like a cathartic experience i mean it was at that point i, I was pretty deep in the dogma of the kind of like lowercase minimalist improv thing and that was a chance for me to scream through my horn and play very densely and uh deal with that kind of playing which has always been more natural to me than than the minimalist thing was well, you know? what was the what was the mental process of the few minutes between when you arrived and when you had to play in that time when you discovered it was going to be only you i think it was i think i tried to back out maybe um because that really and i don't think you know i don't think tim knew that it was the case that 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 was a really uncomfortable thing for me mentally um but the way he set it up, people were really far away. And I thought, okay, I can do this. And he was kind of like, you know, this is part of the, at some point you're going to have to do this. This is like the next step. He was great in that way of just like um, kind of pushing me in the right way that I needed to, you know, uh, at the right time. And so, yeah, I went and sat and I was nervous. And I haven't been nervous like that, but maybe like one or two other times since I moved to New York, like knees shaking kind of nervous and I played the first note and the thing just broke like it made this big unintentional multiphonic and I think after that it was kind of like you'd already made the worst sound you were probably going to make so you might as well just keep doing that you know like that's when your fight or flight kicks in and you're just like well you got to make something out of this now and as it went like I just felt 
myself getting looser and looser and looser and being more personal. And by the end, I was like, this is what I need to do. And, you know, it was like 10 minutes, but it's still totally frightening, you know, still insane. Did you, did it help you realize that it was okay to do those things during that? I think so. I mean, I still went, I was still pretty involved in the lowercase thing for a long time after that, but will you describe what you mean when you're saying lowercase was, is, I mean, there's a way of playing it. It's not so prevalent in New York. Um, although it does have some practitioners and it's this real extremely minimalist way of improvising, very quiet. Usually, uh, volume is very low. There's usually a ton of silence. Um, really extreme extended techniques on the acoustic instruments um things usually acoustic instruments that are that sound like electronics that sound like analog electronics making an acoustic sound that sounds like an analog electronic and combining then with actual electronics players and it's very architectural there's usually no melody at all there's no harmony there's no rhythm it really is just like placing a sound in silence letting that sound be where it is, you know, at the next appropriate spot, making a different sound. And it, it's really beautiful. I mean, it's really austere and amazing. Um, there was a really heavy scene for it in Boston in the 90s, um, and that's still going on. But And now I feel like it really is probably more of a European phenomenon now. But I was, I was really involved with it when I first moved here. And... Uh, and I, th- I think it's pretty amazing. It just started to not feel totally honest to me as far as my playing it. And so I, I stopped. Mm. Or I, I mean, you know, you don't ever stop. I mean, right. those things are still in my language, but I stopped being dogmatic about it. Given all of the things that you've just said in the last half hour, can we turn now to your quintet and talk about how some of the concepts that you've just expressed express themselves when there are five of you and uh, mm-hmm. in a more written way? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, all the ideas that I just expressed come out of being self-absorbed and, and thinking about what I know of myself 
Um, and the quintet to me is, is like the missing piece and it's the uncomfortable missing piece because it's a jazz thing that's really not, um, what I'm necessarily known for doing. If we, if we're thinking about like the stuff we just talked about. Um, but it's how I grew up. I mean, my dad is a jazz musician. I grew up playing in big bands. Like it's a part of my lineage. It's a part of my language. You know, I feel really comfortable in it in a certain way. Um, and so I always felt like I had to have that even at the height of like dealing with noise and dealing with lowercase music and dealing with composition. I felt like I needed to have a jazz group that I wrote quote unquote jazz music for. So that that's where the quintet came from. Um, and it used to be a quartet, um, for many years and it, it featured a drummer named Take Toriyama who unfortunately died. And I stopped doing it after that. It just didn't feel right. Um, but then when my grandmother died, I wrote a tune for her. I don't, I don't even know why it's not necessarily something I normally do. Um, and I basically just got the five guys together that I would want to play that tune. I mean, there are people that were close to me that knew the really close relationship I had with my grandmother and would like treat it in the respectful way that I wanted people to treat it. You know, this, this song specifically for the purpose of recording it or performing it just, at a memorial just, to, or just to, just to perform to play it. it, like just to play it. You know, it's like, I'd like to hear this once. Who would I have do that? And that's where it came, you know, Josh and Josh Sinton and Harris Eisenstadt and Matt Moran and originally John Bear on bass. Um, although I feel the exact same way about Ivan Dobsvik, who plays on the record. Um, I just knew, like, if I was going to be in a room with some with people that and make music that was that close to me, those were the people I would want to be in the room. And that just happened to be like this Eric Dolphy setup. Um, and so as time went on, we played that tune. And then I started thinking, you know, that all these women raised me, um, my grandmother's sisters and my mom and my wife in a way. Um, so I should just write tunes for all of them. I mean, we're already in there. Like we've already started a concept record, so you might as well just like dig in and do it. You know, don't be half-assed about it. Just do it. So I wrote the rest of these pieces, and as as they kind of came out, I never really had a conceptual idea of what the music would sound like. It was just kind of like, here's an idea, um, here's how that works, here's a way to... A lot of it had to do with playing jazz in a way that I wouldn't think of as being boring, so messing with things. I mean, there are things where it's like the changes to Lazy Bird but they modulate in funny ways. So you're never in the same key twice. Like it just keeps going in different versions or we play rhythm change or uh, yeah, we play rhythm changes where you just play the chords at your own speed, regardless of what the rhythm section, you know, just little things that could be goofy if we chose to make them goofy, but knowing the other four guys, I knew they would take it really seriously and, and see the freedom in it, but also like see the challenges of not just like playing rhythm changes.
And now we're working on new tunes, and those seem to... I would say the the record, the Put Your Hands Together, um, really, beyond being for those women, it was also kind of a very definite, in my mind at least, jazz record for my dad, you know, because he's suffered through all these other things um, after hearing me play in big bands for years and, and then, like, things getting super weird. I wanted to make one record where there's a lot of swinging and I play changes, at least at the beginning of the solo, and, you know, just to make him happy. And now we're doing the next record, and uh, there's a lot of elements in there, but I think, like you said earlier, the work with the almond and eight syllables and my work with composers and thinking about 20th century classical music and noise music is seeping its way um, much more into the new tunes, which actually are all based on the Debussy preludes in one way or another. Not, they didn't intend to be that way, but again, like it started happening and I just am going with it. So yeah, I, it's a way to mess around with things. And I feel really comfortable with the quintet because I know I can mess around with things and it's never going to get corny. Like I can make it corny on the page, but we'll find a way to make it like really personal by the time it gets through us. And you know, I hang on to that like as long as I possibly can. You don't get an opportunity to do that very often. So, my guest is Nate Woolley. He has a, a number of really fantastic recordings uh, that I've really enjoyed digging into, and it's been really fun to talk to you. I'm really glad you came on the show. Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. That's music from Nate Woolley. 
Thanks so much to Nate for being on the show. Thank you for listening. And thanks to Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton for sponsoring the show. Please do become a member if you can. You can do it for as little as $10 a month, and it greatly helps me keep the show going, primarily by keeping me sleeping indoors and eating food. And now, if you would, get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.